0: Hey everybody, welcome back to Now Let's Be Honest. My name is David Tate, and this is part 32 in our series, Walking Through the Gospel of Matthew. Before we get started, I just wanted to remind you that I just launched a new YouTube channel where I'm going to be posting a lot of the videos that used to would have been posted on my main channel, now let's be honest. So if you're wanting some more laid-back, long-form, informal content, such as the Bible studies that I lead at my house, or the discipleship groups that I lead, or the sermons that I preach at my church, you can find those at the new YouTube channel, which is simply called David Tate. However, for the stuff that you're currently listening to, that should all still be found on my main channel, and so if that's all you're here for, that is A-OK let's get back to the thing that you're actually here for. Today, we're going to finish Matthew chapter 10 and go into the very first verse of Matthew chapter 11. And that's mainly because for some reason they put the chapter break at a very weird spot at this particular section in the gospel of Matthew. But that being said, now that we're finishing Matthew chapter 10, we are being brought to the conclusion of our second discourse section in the Gospel of Matthew. The way that we've been analyzing this whole thing is that the majority of Matthew's gospel is split into a series of narratives and discourses. Chapters 1 through 4 is narrative. Chapters 5 through 7, discourse. Chapters 8 and 9, narrative. And then chapter 10 is Discourse, right? And so this is the second discourse section that we've really been in, and what we've seen over the course of this chapter is that Jesus is sending his apostles on a mission, right? So in the first four verses of the chapter, he actually appoints the twelve apostles, right? He has a bunch of disciples. He appoints twelve of them in particular to be his apostles, the people he is going to send out with his authority as ambassadors to establish his message and proclaim his kingdom, right? That happens in verses 1 through 4. And then when you go to verses 5 through 15, he begins to lay out the mission that he is going to give them, right? So Jesus is talking with the apostles and he basically says, Hey, here's the deal. I'm going to send you out into the people of Israel and you're going to go do this one particular thing to this one particular group. And here's how you're going to do it. And here's the methods and principles that I'm going to give you in order to go about it. And if you were to just stop at the end of verse 15, this would sound like one of the most exciting missions ever because Jesus tells tells them that not only are they going to go out proclaiming this message, but they are going to be given power to authenticate the message, right? They are given power over disease, power over death, power over the devil himself. They're going to be ca- casting out demons. They're going to be doing all sorts of stuff. And it really sounds exciting. But then you get to verse 16 and you keep reading into verse 33. And that's what we covered last week. And whenever you get to those verses, you begin to realize that this mission Doesn't sound nearly as exciting as it might have sounded at first. Because yes, they are given power over disease, death, and the devil, but what they're not given power over is the power to escape persecution. Because as we see in those verses, and as we're going to continue to see in the verses we're covering today, this is not going to be an easy mission. Yes, it is an important mission, and yes, it is a necessary mission. But the mission is going to be one that is going to involve a whole lot of persecution and a whole lot of pushback towards the apostles as they go about it. And we even talked about this in previous weeks, and um, we'll probably talk about it a little bit today as well. But even though Jesus is talking specifically to the apostles in regards to their mission, there are certain principles, I think, that are going to apply to anybody who decides to take the call of Jesus seriously, right? And I don't want us to immediately assume that everything he says to them does apply to us as well, But the way that he speaks about it is based off of certain principles, right? And if those principles were true of the apostles, I think that those principles will, by and large, be true of us as well. And so as we're reading this, I don't want us to make that disconnect, right? Um, I, I know some people, they read these chapters and they immediately apply it to us. I don't want us to do that either. I want us to realize that the original audience is the apostles, but I also don't want us to disconnect it so far that we think that it only applies to them. Right, And so, in verses 16 to 33 of this chapter, we really see that Jesus begins to prepare them for the hardship that they're going to face, and we see that the hardship there is not just going to come from outside people, right? This is not simply going to come from the Romans or the pagans and stuff like that. No, it's going to come from Jewish people, and not only from Jewish people, but it's going to come from their own families. And that's really what's going to come to the forefront here in these final few verses of this chapter. Uh, We're going to see that Jesus is really highlighting the division that's going to come down to the very family unit and how even families themselves are going to be divided over this whole Jesus issue. And before we actually get into the verses today, I really wanted to just highlight the implications of what Jesus is talking about here. Um, Because in order to understand the full implications of it, I think you have to remind yourself of the context of the first century Jewish family, right? Because I think that you can understand the message if you just think about this in terms of families in general. But I don't think that you can understand the full implications of it and the full message unless you remind yourself of the nature of families back then, right? I mean, nowadays, like I live over here, I I live in Texas, right? (laughs) And so I live in 21st century America. And 21st century America is a very individualistic culture. And yes, we might gather together with our families on Christmases and Easter's. And, you know, for the more fortunate of y'all out there, y'all might see your families all the time. Right. But by and large, we live in a culture that is very disconnected from our families. That is not first century Israel right? First century Israel was not like that. And so before we actually hop into these verses, I wanted to kind of front load this whole thing by just talking about the family unit, because if you understand the nature of the family, you'll understand really what Jesus is getting at here whenever he says that he came to divide families. Uh, And so I just want to talk about four things real quick, Um, really about what the family unit was, right? Uh, And I'm going to speak of it in the terms of source, right? So your family unit was your source of, firstly, your reputation. It was the source of your help. It was the source of your hope. And it was the source of your identity. right? And I want to break those four down real quick just to help explain this. And if you understand those four things, the rest of this passage will just make so much sense to you. Um, And it will really heighten what Jesus is saying. And once again, you don't have to understand these things in order to understand what Jesus is saying. But if you want to understand the extent of what Jesus is saying, I would argue that you probably do need to know this, right? And so first off, the family is the source of your reputation, right? This is something that in first century Israel, um, the way that businesses were conducted and the way that people interact with people were usually not based off the individual person in and of themselves, but on the reputation of their families, right? So the reputation of a parent could affect that kid for the rest of their life. Right. And so who hired this child and who conducted business with this child? Well, largely, that would depend on the reputation of the family, right? So, like, for instance, the apostles, James and John, right? They are the sons of Zebedee. Well, it seems like whenever you look at all the Gospels, James and John had greater access to certain things because of the reputation of their father, right? You go read the Gospel of John, and you get to see that apparently John himself knew was familiar with the high priest and his family and stuff, and that might have largely come because of his father being a well-known fisherman, right? And so the reputation of a family... Uh, the reputation of one member in the family would affect everybody else's, right? And I think you still do feel that to a degree today, but not by any means to the same extent as back then, right? These were people who were known by their families, right? The reputation of one family member affected the rest of it, right? If you were descended from the tribe of Judah, they would almost read all of Judah's attributes onto you. If you were descended from the tribe of Levi, the tribe of Simeon, right? This is why whenever you're reading through the whole Bible, you'll see that there are certain people who Israelites are prohibited from marrying into, right? You're not supposed to marry a Midianite or a Moabite or something like that because of the reputations of these people and the characters that they entertained and the different religious practices that they undertook, right? So one person's reputation would affect the whole family's reputation. And so the first thing you need to know is that a family was the source of your reputation and all of your business practices and your own reputation depended on your family. Right. That's the first thing. The second thing you need to know is that your family was your source of help. Right. Nowadays, in our government, we have all sorts of, you know, social welfare packages and practices and stuff that we have um, just to help people out. Right. We have government aid programs to help people out in their time of need. Right. We have homeless shelters and places where people can go if they find themselves facing some hard luck. That was really not the case in first century Israel. Yes, it was encouraged that you give to the poor and take care of the needy, but by and large, your social welfare network was your family, right? So if you found yourself in a position where you were poor or you were a widow or you were an orphan, it was your family that was called to provide for you, right? And that's why whenever you get into the New Testament church time period, Uh, you have them emphasizing so much taking care of widows and orphans. And you even have this in the Old Testament as well. That was one thing that Israel was supposed to be set apart from everybody else because this was really true of all cultures at this time period, right? Now, your family unit was the social welfare network, right? And so many other people would naturally just abandon their families. Uh, Whereas in Israel, you were called to take care of your family, right? And so if somebody was widowed and somebody was orphaned, you were supposed to bring them in, right? According to the Jewish law, if a woman's husband died and they had not had a child yet, well, then it would be the brother of that man who would marry the woman in order to provide a child for her so that she would not be destitute the rest of her life. Right. And so if you were a person who found yourself in need or impoverished or just poor or in bad health or anything like that, your family would be the ones who would provide for you. Right. And so not only was your family the source of your reputation, but the family was your source of help. And so if you are removed from your family, You have lost all access to help that you might have previously had, right? And so if you're poor and you're estranged from your family, nobody's going to provide for you. If you're a widow, if you're an orphan and you're estranged from your family, nobody's going to provide for you. And so that's another thing that emphasizes how important the family unit was back then, right? This was not a culture uh, where, you know, a widowed woman could just go and get a job to provide for herself. That was not that culture right? Nowadays, we take these certain things for granted. And if we wanted to be estranged from our families, we could easily do that. And some people choose to do that just because of these bitter grudges they hold against one another. That was not a decision you could just make in first century Israel, right? The family unit was essential to the fabric of reality and the fabric of living, right? If you wanted to be provided for, and if you wanted somebody to be able to take care of you, if you ever needed somebody to, the family was essential. So they were the source of reputation, the source of help. But not only that, they were the source of your hope, right? Because when it comes to establishing the future, inheritances were a huge thing, right? And so your relationship with your family was really important because whenever your parents died, they would leave you this inheritance in order to help take care of you even after their death, right? And so they would give you a hope for the future. That's another huge component of the family unit. And I think this is probably the one that has probably carried on the most Um, into our current societies, right? Because nowadays we still have people receiving inheritances and stuff like that. Uh, And so I think that this one is one that's carried on the most, but back then it was even more essential, right? Whenever you were working, you were working not only for yourself and to provide for your own needs, but for the needs of all of your family members for the future generations, right? It was um, really a down payment on providing for them. And so they were the source of your reputation, your help and your hope. But ultimately, and this is really the biggest one, Your family was the source of your identity, right? It was the source of who you were. This is how you identified yourself, right? Think about how people are referenced in the Bible. Jesus, son of Joseph. Simon, son of Jonah, right? This is what people are called, right? It is so-and-so, son of so-and-so. Isaac, son of Abraham. Jacob, son of Isaac. Judah, son of Jacob, right? This is what people are called, right? Right now, my name is David Tate. My father's name is David. If I were living in first century Israel, I would be David, son of David. Right? That's how it would have been. Right nowadays we have last names and stuff like that, which do identify ourselves with our family at large. But the way that somebody was known was by their family name, right? It was by who their dad was. And this kind of ties back to the whole first point about the reputation thing. Who your dad was said a lot about you. This is why, I mean, think about how the whole gospel of Matthew starts. The book of the genealogy of Jesus the Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Matthew is not simply identifying Jesus with David and Abraham as a matter of lineage. He's identifying Jesus with the characters and the reputations of those people, right? The reason why it's significant that Jesus is the son of David is because, like David, he is a king. The reason why he is associated with Abraham is not only because he's descended from Abraham, but it's because, like Abraham, he is going to be the father of many nations. He is going to be the source of hope through whom the nations of the world will be blessed right this is why matthew associates jesus with those people and so i say all this because i want you to understand the importance of the family unit in first century judea right and the first century israel at large because if you don't understand this you're going to miss the strength of what jesus says in these verses that we're going to walk through because whenever jesus is talking to the disciples what he's going to say is he's going to tell them that he came to divide them against their families and you have to realize that in that culture family is everything. And so whenever Jesus is telling them that they're going to lose their families, he's telling them that they are going to lose everything, right? They are going to lose their reputations. They are going to lose their source of help. They're going to lose their source of hope. They're going to lose their very identities themselves. And they're going to have to build all those things up in a new family, right? The family of God. But Jesus isn't really going to talk about the family of God a whole lot in these verses. Instead, he's going to highlight the cost of discipleship, which is something that we already saw the seeds planted for in chapters 8 and 9, right? In chapters 8 and 9, we got to see all the miracles that Jesus was performing. But in between those miracle stories, we would have these cost of discipleship moments. Well, this is really what he's laying down right here to the apostles, right? He's letting them know how much following Jesus is going to cost them. And... Um, I'm going to say one final thing before we hop into this. Um, we just don't understand this as much in our current cultures as they did back then, right? There are some people nowadays who do understand this, right? There are some Christians nowadays who understand this. But I think if you really want to understand the social implications of what Jesus is saying here, um, think more um uh, more about how Muslims can be estranged from their families if they convert to something else, right? Especially Muslims in the Middle East, Right. Or even from um, like Jehovah's Witness or Latter-day Saints, right? Those people, um, they probably have a better understanding. And I'm talking about more of the stricter Jehovah's Witness and Latter-day Saints. Um, Those people probably have a better understanding of what Jesus is saying here. Because to be separated from your family and to be estranged from your family would cost you everything. It would, you would have to give up your entire social world and not only your social world, um, but really just your world in general, right? It would be like being cast into a totally different society. That's what Jesus is going to be telling them that it's going to cost them to follow him. And if you understand that, this passage will make more sense to you and it will highlight the implications of what Jesus is saying. That being said, I know I did a lot of front talking there, Um, But I think it's essential for us to understand these verses. So let's get to what Jesus says. He says this. Do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be the members of his household. He who loves father and mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life will lose it. And he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. These are some crazy, strong words. And that's something I've tried, I've tried to highlight for us throughout this whole study of the Gospel of Matthew, is the strength of Jesus' words. There are a lot of people who will assert that Jesus never claimed to be God. Um, and they'll say that really the gospel of John came way later and that it isn't until the gospel of John that we have any of the um, evangelists actually calling Jesus God. No, 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 right? If you understand the implications of what Jesus is saying, there's nobody but God who can make these claims. And we're actually going to see this explicitly just in these first few verses, right? Uh, So Jesus is very clearly claiming to be God, uh, just in these words. Uh, I don't know if the disciples would have picked up on the extent of what he's saying here, but there's a reason why they came to worship him as God eventually. It's because the more they reflected on this, the more they came to understand the implications of it. So he says, Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be the members of his household. This is something that um, people often overlook here. Uh, But verses 35 and 36 are not words that are unique to Jesus, but he's actually quoting from Micah chapter 7. And if you go back to Micah chapter 7 and you look at the context of that whole um, thing, that's the Old Testament prophets, right? Um, Micah is written to a people during a really dark time in the region of Judah, right? Uh, This is the southern kingdom of Judah um, during the time period of the divided monarchy. And Micah is writing to these people and he's talking about his present conditions as a time period of just social collapse, right? It's a time period whenever the Jewish nation was, by and large, turning away from God. And as a result of turning away from God, they were turning on one another. And so this is what Matthew, uh, what Micah says in Micah chapter 7. I actually want to read you a little bit more than what Jesus quotes here, uh, because I think if you understand what Micah is saying, um, you'll understand what Jesus is saying here as well, because that's what the apostles would have done, right? They would understand the reference. This is what Micah says in Micah chapter 7. He says, Do not believe in a neighbor. Do not have confidence in a close companion. From her who lies in your bosom, guard the openings of your mouth. For son treats father as a wicked fool. Daughter rises up against her mother. Daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own household. But as for me, I will watch expectantly for Yahweh. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. So, What Micah is saying here is that he is living in a time period of such social upheaval in the land of Judah that you can't even trust the closest people to you, right? Notice what he says. Don't believe your neighbor. Don't have confidence in your close companion. From her who who lies in your bosom, guard the openings of your mouth, right? So he says, from your own wife, you got to keep secrets because you can't even trust your own wife. That's how bad things were in Micah's day. But Micah resolves and he says... As for me, I will watch expectantly for Yahweh. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. Right? So he says, you can't trust anybody around you. The only person you can trust is God, Yahweh. Well, now look at what Jesus says here. For I came to set a man against his father and a daughter against his mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be the members of his household. So he's quoting from Micah chapter 7. But in Micah chapter 7, Micah is talking about how bad things have become as a result of God's judgment on the people and because of the people turning from God. Well, in this instance, Jesus is the one who is setting the people against one another and the people are turning against one another because of the rejection of Jesus. And so whenever Jesus says, I came to set a man against his father in the context of Micah, he is putting himself in Yahweh's sandals, right? Yahweh is the one who sets man against his father and daughter against his mother and daughter-in-law against the mother-in-law And the man's enemies will be members of his own household because of their rejection of Yahweh Well, jesus says that they're gonna be enemies of their household because of the rejection of him So jesus is placing himself in the place of yahweh the god of israel So whenever people tell you that jesus did not claim to be god They need to study their old testaments because if you have studied the hebrew scriptures You can see that on every page of the New Testament, Jesus is claiming to be God, right? And so he says, do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword, right? So as Micah vowed to look to Yahweh, Jesus is demanding that his disciples look to him, right? Don't miss that, right? The apostles are in the, like, the apostles are being put in the place of the prophet Micah. Jesus is put in the place of Yahweh, right? Just as Micah looked to Yahweh, the apostles are called to look to him. And the reason why is because like Yahweh, like the God of Israel, Jesus is bringing a sword. And you need to understand, like, don't miss the force of what Jesus says here. He says, do not think I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. He does not say that this sword of division is an after effect or an accident or a side effect of his mission. No, what Jesus says here, and the thing I don't want you to miss, is Jesus says that he came to bring the sword. In fact, he says he did not come to bring peace. That's crazy, right? He is the Prince of Peace, and we know that he did come to bring peace in a sense, but apparently the sword of peace that Jesus brought is not the passive sort of peace that we hunger for. The peace that Jesus came to bring is a peace that comes through the sword, right? He is going to achieve peace, but he came to bring the sword. And in context, the sword is dividing family members against one another. And that is absolutely crazy, right? Jesus is saying, like, the implication here is that if you choosing to follow Jesus leads you to be separated and estranged from your families, like it's going to do with the apostles here. The implication is that that's why Jesus came, right? Jesus came in order to sever ties with families. Now, don't get me wrong. If the families all collectively decide to worship Jesus, well, then guess what? That's a great thing. But if people decide, like if if they're split, if some choose to follow Jesus and some choose to not follow Jesus, that Jesus says, I didn't come to bring peace, right? I didn't come just so that you could live at peace with people who are opposed to me. He says, I came to divide you and I came to sever you from the people who reject me. That's a pretty huge implication right here. Um, But it also, in and of itself, is a reference back to another Old Testament passage. If you go back to Isaiah chapter 49, uh, this is one of the servant songs of Isaiah. Uh, Notice what God says here in regards to um, his servant who is going to come one day. He says this. Listen to me, O coastlands, and pay attention, you peoples from afar. Yahweh called me from the womb. This is the servant speaking. Yahweh called me, the servant, from the womb. From the body of my mother, he made my name to be remembered. He has set my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he has concealed me. And he has also set me as a select arrow. He has hidden me in his quiver. He said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will show forth my beautiful glory. But I said, I have toiled in vain. I have spent my might for nothing in vanity. Yet surely the justice due to me is with Yahweh and my reward is with God. So in the context of Isaiah, this is one of Isaiah's servant songs. There's a bunch of them in the book of Isaiah, especially in the back half, right? Well, only in the back half, right? So if you go to the book of Isaiah, there's several servant songs and people will debate about who the servant is. And in this passage, it clearly identifies the servant as Israel, right? But one thing you'll notice about the gospel of Matthew, and we've been talking about this the whole time, is that he is presenting Jesus as Israel, Right. The story of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew is the story of Jesus, the new and the greater Israel. Jesus is following through the history of Israel, but he's succeeding where Israel failed. Right. And so if you read Isaiah 49 and you hear about God appointing this servant, Israel, to be a sword to the nations. Well, Jesus says that he is a sword to Israel. Right. He says, that's why I'm here. I came not to bring peace on the earth to all the nations. I came not to bring peace, but a sword. Right? He is here to divide people. He says, I came to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a man's enemies will be members of his household. And once again, he's not saying these are just side effects. He's not saying that I came in order to draw people to me and as a result, man and father are going to be against one another. And as a result, daughter and mother are going to be against one another. He says, no, I came here to pit them against one another. I came to draw the dividing line. That is some very strong language. And so he identifies himself as the servant of Yahweh in Isaiah 49, but he also identifies himself as Yahweh himself in Micah chapter 7. And this really gives us a lot of insight to Jesus' ministry. Because on one hand, and you can't deny this given the other things that Jesus says in the Gospel of Matthew itself, on one hand, Jesus did come to unite and to heal. But on the other hand, he did come to divide and bring about hostility, right? And this just, it raises a lot of questions about Jesus' ministry because you see that it's a lot more complex than it might at first seem, right? We love talking about the meek and mild Jesus who came to bring salvation for all, but that's not the only portrait you get of Jesus in the Gospels, right? And a lot of times people will talk about how different the Jesus in Revelation is from the Jesus in the Gospels, but... I would argue that the Jesus in the Gospels is actually vastly different than the Jesus we typically portray him as. Yes, he is a meek and mild, lowly Jesus. Jesus is going to talk about that in Matthew chapter 11, right? Just like the next chapter, he's going to talk about being meek and lowly of heart. And he's going to offer this great invitation to everybody. But in this chapter, he's talking in very strong language as as somebody who shows up to separate families from one another. And the implications of this are just crazy because if you think about it, the family unit is the most significant structure in the people, like in the, in the social construct of first century Israel, the family unit is the most essential thing behind devotion to God, right? Like the, it's devotion to God, devotion to family. And Jesus says that he is here. And if you want to follow him, You must be willing to abandon your family for the sake of him. So just by the nature of what he is asserting about himself, he is putting himself in God's place and he is demanding that his followers are willing to abandon everything for the sake of him. And I think the reason why he addresses the family here is because Jesus recognizes that families can often be one of the greatest hindrances to discipleship. And that's something that was true back then, but it's also true nowadays Right. Think about it. Nowadays, uh, whenever people get together with their families during holidays, usually there's a rule. Don't bring up politics or religion. Well, because usually you know that those two things are going to divide the family. Well, the issue is, aren't those two things some of the most important aspects of who we are as humans? Right. Um, Politics. I mean, that literally decides everything socially speaking, um, like about the world we live in. But then also religion. I mean, this is the God that we worship. Right? How can you get together with your family and not talk about religion? Whenever religion should, it should define everything that you are, right? Who God is and who he has made you to be and how you relate to him. That should define everything. How can you get together with your family and not talk about religion? But nowadays, in our current culture, we say don't bring up religion whenever you're with your families. Well, the reason why is because we realize that if you make a lot, a big deal about religion with your families and you all disagree, then it might sever the family. And so what we do, is we elevate our devotion to our families over our devotion to God. And we say, okay, compartmentalize God and don't bring him up during holidays, but bring him up at church, right? But when you're with your family, don't bring him up because you don't want anything to divide you from your family. And that's in our current culture, which really doesn't even care about family that much, right? If I'm being honest, our current culture is an individualistic culture that does not value family nearly as much as they did back in first century Israel. Yet even we face that same temptation, and we even allow family to be a hindrance to discipleship, and we allow family to keep us from advancing our faith. How much more back in first century Israel? That's why Jesus addresses this, and this is why Jesus makes such a big deal about being cut off from your families, Because he realizes that families are going to be the thing that keep people from following him. Because they don't want to make their families mad. They don't want to cut ties with their families. And in first century Israel, it was way worse than it is here. Right? And I even know people nowadays um, who, like, I've had conversations with them and it breaks my heart. I've talked with them. And this is in 21st century America. Where people say they want to follow Jesus, but they don't know how their families would respond. And in reality, their families probably might not agree with the choice but there's not going to be that many social ramifications to the choice. Whereas back in first century Israel, there were huge ramifications to this, yet Jesus still says that they must choose him. And if the language of verses 34 through 36 weren't enough to prove that point, look at what he says in the next three verses. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life will lose it. And he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. Jesus says that if people aren't willing to give up everything for him, their entire social world, their entire hope, their entire future, their entire identity, if they're not willing to give that stuff up, then they aren't worthy to be his disciples. That is some strong language, and I I just don't want you to once again miss the strength behind the words of what he is saying, right? This assertion is a very high assertion because no normal man can claim this, right? I cannot, like, if I stood at the pulpit at my church and said these words, they would run me off as the most arrogant and cocky and proud and delusional man ever, right? Imagine that, right? Imagine if I were to talk to you right now, right? If you're, whether you're watching this on my YouTube channel or listening to it in podcast form, what if I told you? He who loves father or mother more than me, David Tate, is not worthy of me, David Tate. He who loves son or daughter more than me, David Tate, is not worthy of me, David Tate. You would hear that, and you would think that I'm the most delusional person in the world, and you would wonder what type of hubris I would have to have in order to arrive at such conclusions. But here Matthew is, one of the apostles of Jesus, writing the gospel of Jesus, and he is asserting that Jesus is not delusional, and that he's not insane, and that he's not arrogant, but that he's correct, right? You have to realize who wrote this gospel, right? This is one of the apostles of Jesus. This is one of the guys who heard these words of Jesus and who decided to follow Jesus. This guy did not think Jesus was delusional. He did not think that Jesus was cocky. He did not think Jesus was arrogant. Matthew heard these words, and he knew that Jesus was correct. He knew that if anybody loved father or mother more than Jesus, then they were not worthy of Jesus. He knew that if anybody loved their son or their daughter more than Jesus, they were not worthy of Jesus. He knew that if anybody did not take their cross and follow after Jesus, they were not worthy of Jesus. The only thing I can compare this to, uh, the only thing that comes to mind to compare it to, is Genesis chapter 22. This is what Abraham knew. right? The way that Genesis 22 begins is with God turning to Abraham and says, Abraham, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, And come to the mountain which I show you and offer him as a sacrifice. And that's just such an amazing scene. Uh, And oftentimes we miss the point of that whole story because we're so focused on making the Jesus connection in that story whenever Abraham goes to sacrifice his son. But the whole point of that story is that God is wanting to see whether or not Abraham values him more than anything else. The very first time the word love shows up in the entire Bible is in that story in Genesis 22. Take your son whom you love and sacrifice him. God uses the word love for the very first time in the Bible. And in the context of love being used for the very first time, it is used in the context of giving up what you love for the sake of God. Right? That's what Genesis 22 is about. And Abraham passes the test. He is willing to give up his son, whom he loves more than anything. He's willing to give him up for God. And that's why God stops him and says, I just wanted to see that you feared me. Jesus is once again putting himself in the place of God. As God told Abraham to give up his son for the sake of him, so Jesus turns to his apostles. And this isn't just to the apostles. This is to all of us, right? This is in the context of him sending the apostles out to preach the kingdom. And so the message he is telling the apostles is the message they're supposed to share with everybody. And he is saying, if you love your father or your mother or your son or your daughter more than me, you are not worthy of me. And then he advances it even more in verse 38 whenever he says, if you love your life more than me, You're not worthy of me. And you might say, well, how did you get life out of that? Well, he says, he who does not take up his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. This is the very first reference we have to the cross in the Gospel of Matthew. And I think it's cool because it is the very first reference to cross, but it's not referencing the cross of Jesus. It is referencing the cross that the disciples choose to bear. Anyone who does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Right. The implications that Jesus is going to carry across as well, uh, which is probably news to the disciples at this point because they haven't heard that. Um, and it's our temptation nowadays to water this down. Right. Nowadays, we all talk like it's just a, it's a phrase just in secular society that this is our cross to bear. And we like talking about everything as our cross to bear. Right. We say, oh, man, like this person was mean to me and I decided to forgive them. I guess that's my cross to bear. That's I mean, don't get me wrong. That is a cross, but it's a very small cross. That's not what Jesus is saying here, right? First off, um, the cross to bear in context is being severed from your family. That is the cross to bear. Um, So, like, what he's talking about whenever he says, take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Well, you have to realize that Jesus has been cut off from his family because his brothers and his mothers and his his mother and sister, they don't believe in him at this point, right? He's been cut off from them, right? We see that in other gospels especially. Uh, But we're going to see it in the Gospel of Matthew later on as well. So Jesus has been cut off from his family at this point in his ministry. Uh, Eventually, they will come back to him, which is really cool. Uh, But we don't read about that in the Gospel of Matthew, right? So he's been cut off from them. And so in context, the cross to bear is being cut off from your family. The apostles need to be willing to go through this, and we need to be willing to go through it as well. But literally speaking, whenever he says, take your cross and follow after me, he is talking about a literal cross that they will carry to their literal death. How do I know this? Well, if you go to the previous verses in this chapter, he says, uh, this verses 21 and 22, and brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child, and children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death, and you'll be hated by all because of my name, and it is the one who has endured to the end who will be saved. You know how I talked about the family unit being the center of society in first century Israel? Well, um, according to... The law, And according to many practices in Israel and in other societies, family members could choose to put other family members to death. That was a thing, right? That's something that we see in the Old Testament law. Uh, Family members could decide to do this. But at this time period um, in first century Israel, the Romans had taken away their right to the death penalty, right? And so family members could not do this. But what they could do is they could hand over their family members to other officials to have them be put to death. And if they were handed over to the Romans, who had the death penalty, um, well, eventually the Romans would probably have them crucified. And so whenever Jesus says that you need to be willing to take your cross and follow after me, this is not a metaphor, right? In context, he's talking about being severed from your families, but because they're being severed from their families, they are being handed over to die because that's what their family members are doing to them, right? This is not simply, okay, I'm no longer talking to my brother or sister or mother or father. This is not simply... We don't gather together for Christmas anymore because we don't like each other. No, this is my family was so mad about me following Jesus that they handed me over to the authorities to be murdered. Jesus says, if you're not willing to endure that sort of persecution from your family, you are not worthy of me. That is a high calling, right? So he's not just like, this is more than simply being killed, right? It's one thing to be martyred and die for your faith. He is saying that before you're killed, You are subjugated to familial scorn. You will become a social pariah and you'll have to endure all the shame that comes with that. And then on top of all of it, you'll be killed. He says, if you're not willing to go through all that for me, you are not worthy to be my disciple. And if I'm being entirely honest, we cannot afford to water this down. But so often we read these verses and we miss it because we've, we've heard the phrases so much, right? We've heard this quoted so much and we miss the implications of it, but Jesus is speaking some very harsh teachings here. This is hard to understand. It's hard to wrap your mind around, but he's saying, if you're not willing to become a social pariah, if you're not willing to be estranged from everybody, you know, and love, if you're not willing to lay down your very life in the most punish, like the most painful and shameful way possible, if you're not willing to go through all of that, you're not worthy to be my disciple. If you're not willing to endure the electric chair, if you're not willing to go through, get the fatal injection, if you're not willing to have those things administered to to you by your own children, by your own brother, by your own parents, you're not worthy to be my disciple. But then in verse 39, he does offer a word of comfort. He who has found his life will lose it and he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. All the things he's been saying here are terrifying, but he gives them a promise. He says, guys, I'm not just asking you to give up everything. You're giving up everything in this world for the sake of a beautiful reward in heaven, right? What Really what he's saying in Matthew chapter 10 is the same thing he said in the first discourse, chapters five through seven, right? He's saying, don't serve the kingdoms of this earth, right? Will not your heavenly father provide for you? He says, if you lose your life for my sake on this earth, I have a great news for you. I've got, got a great promise for you. You'll have eternal life in heaven, right? He who has found his life will lose it. And he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. If you lose your life, don't worry. You're going to find it when you open your eyes again. So he says, guys, I know that all this stuff sounds horrible. And I know that it sounds harsh. And I know it sounds like I'm making a big deal out of this. But it's because I am. And it is harsh. And it is a big deal. He says, if you go through with it, the reward on the other end will be great. And it will be worth it. Right? You can't keep this stuff on earth. And he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep in order to gain that which he cannot lose. He says, be willing to give it up. Follow after me. Pick up your cross. Chase after me. Which then leads us to the conclusion of what he says here. He who receives you receives me. And he who receives me receives him who sent me. He who receives a prophet in the name of a prophet shall receive a prophet's reward. And he who receives a righteous man in the name of a righteous man shall receive a righteous man's reward. And whoever in the name of a disciple gives to one of these little ones, even a cup of cold water to drink, truly I say to you, he shall not lose his reward. Now it happened that when Jesus had finished giving instructions to his 12 disciples, he departed from there to teach and preach in their cities. All right, so I love how this wraps up here, right? So, um... First off, uh, some theology that we have here, right? He who receives you, the apostles, receives me, Jesus, and he who receives me, Jesus, receives him who sent me, the Father, right? And so here we have Jesus giving his authority to the apostles, right? Uh, If we had any questions about whether or not the apostles received authority from Jesus, here it is explicitly said, right? The Father sent the Son into the world. The Son sends the apostles into the world, right? And those who receive the apostles receive Jesus. And if you receive Jesus, you receive the apostles, it's a part and parcel thing, right? If you receive one, you receive all of them, right? In order to receive the father, you have to receive Jesus. In order to receive Jesus, you have to receive the apostles, right? And so if you believe in the apostolic testimony, you receive not only Jesus, but the father as well, right? Whenever Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life No known against the father except through me, he is speaking to the apostles, right? And they are the ones who teach the way, right? The New Testament canon, the books of the New Testament are built on apostolic authority, Right, Because if you want Jesus and the Father, you have to go through the apostles. Right, The apostles are the ones who give this teaching down. So he says, if somebody receives you, they're going to receive me. And they who receive me receive him who sent me. And then I want you to notice the grace of Jesus in what he says here. He who receives a prophet in the name of a prophet shall receive a prophet's reward. And he who receives a righteous man in the name of a righteous man shall receive a righteous man's reward. Jesus is so much grac- more gracious than we are. Right? Um, We love justice, right? We love giving people what they deserve. And even then, a lot of times we like withholding what people deserve. But you notice what Jesus does not say? He does not say, he who receives a prophet and becomes a prophet shall receive a prophet's reward. He says, if you receive the prophet themselves, you'll receive the prophet's reward. So if you read this in context, right? Jesus is the only one who deserves to be with the Father the apostles don't deserve to be with the father but the apostles received jesus and so since they received jesus they received jesus and the father and now we we don't deserve the father or jesus and we don't deserve for the gospel to be preached to us but if we receive the apostles we're receiving the apostles reward right and we're receiving the father the son and the apostolic testimony we receive all of that but we don't have to become apostles to do that we don't have to become deserving Right? He doesn't say that you have to be a righteous man to receive the righteous man's reward. All you have to do is receive the righteous man, right? The righteous man comes to you. He teaches you this message and you accept him into your presence and you respond rightly to him. Now, because God is gracious, he is going to give to you what the righteous man deserved. Is that not so cool? Right? Nowadays, this is not what we want, right? Um, We want people like, you know, like just how stingy we are with stuff, right? Right? Um, in order for people to prove to us that they are Christians, we want them to be able to recite the scriptures forward and backwards, and they need to demonstrate that they are perfect. And that's how we know they're a Christian. Well, to be fair, man looks to the outward appearance, God looks to the heart, and so God knows whether they're a Christian or not. And so it makes sense why we would expect more of people, but still, a lot of the times, we're really harsh on people. Right here, Jesus is saying, it's not about being righteous. It's not about being a prophet. It is about reception, right? We often want people to become prophets before they can receive the prophet's reward. We often want people to become righteous before they can receive what a righteous man is due. Jesus says that it is simply the willingness to receive the prophet and the righteous man that's enough to receive the reward, right? You don't have to be righteous to get what the righteous man deserves. You simply have to be willing to receive the righteous man. Do you see how this is paving the way for the gospel and what we believe about Jesus and his death? right? Because Jesus is the prophet. Jesus is the righteous man. And according to Jesus, you don't have to be a prophet or a righteous man to receive what the prophet or the righteous man deserves. You just have to receive him. You have to believe in him. You have to accept him. In the context, this is not talking about Jesus dying on the cross. In the context, this is talking about the people who received the apostles. But you can see how the logic Jesus is demonstrating here leads to the gospel that we now proclaim, right? We do not receive salvation because we are righteous. We receive salvation because we have received the righteous man, right? We have accepted him. We have believed in him. As the apostles received Jesus, and as Jesus is from the Father, well, so we receive what the apostles said, and therefore we receive Jesus and the Father. And the righteousness that Jesus demonstrated is given to us, right? That's the logic Jesus is demonstrating here. It isn't spoken in the context of that, but it's the same logic that we're going to see at play in um, the actual, um, in our soteriology, right? In our beliefs about salvation, right? It is the choice, the reception of the righteous man and of the prophet and of the apostles and of Jesus that ultimately matters. Um, And the actual obedience and the transformation will follow, right? It's like justification versus sanctification if you're speaking in theological terms. And notice what Jesus says in order to define what it looks like to receive the righteous man. And whoever in the name of a disciple gives to one of these little ones even a cup of cold water to drink. Truly I say to you, he shall not lose his reward. I love that, right? Notice that he does not expect some robust proclamation of the faith and he doesn't want this person, like, he's not demanding an exuberant um, dramatic sign. He says, whenever my apostles come to you, and he calls them little ones because they're probably young compared to him, right? I mean, I my belief is that the apostles are probably teenagers whenever he's sending them out. Right? Because Jesus is like 30, he's in his 30s and he's calling them little ones. And there's just other evidence that to me that seems like the apostles are probably pretty young. And so he says, whenever these little ones come to you, if you in their name give them a cup of water, you won't lose your reward. Right? And once again, in context, um, this isn't simply saying that as long as you go to a church and you give somebody a glass of water that you're a Christian. That's not what it's saying, right? Once again, you have to remember the context. Right In the context of what he's been talking about here, this is the context of persecution. right? And so these people have been estranged from their families. They've been estranged from their entire social world. And Jesus says, I don't need you to do this robust thing where you just go out of your way to estrange yourself from your family in order to prove that you're one of them. No, giving a glass of water will be enough. Because in giving a glass of water, the message will be clear. Right? Whenever your family comes and they hear that an apostle was nearby and you gave them a glass of water, your family's going to know where you stand, right? Those enemies of the state, those people, those social pariahs, they came by here and you gave them a glass of water. To give people in that situation a glass of water is to identify yourselves with them, right? And so Jesus says, if you just give them a cup of water, that's enough, right? If you do that, you are identifying yourself with them. That demonstrates that you will receive that reward. Jesus is just so gracious. Whoever in the name of a disciple gives to one of these little ones even a cup of cold water to drink, truly I say to you, he shall not lose his reward. Right? Just a willingness to identify yourself with the apostles of Jesus and being willing to bear that persecution. Right? To to, to bear the judgment. Right? And once again, um, that... Like, the context here is that the persecution is very severe, and I don't want to undermine the persecution we face nowadays, because there is persecution, even in 21st century America. It might not come in the same form, and it might not be nearly as severe, but it's still there. And Jesus emphasizes this, as do the rest of the New Testament authors, and as the Hebrew scriptures as well. The whole point is endurance, right? That is the point, right? You need to be willing to endure. And if you just immediately just abandon and you're not willing to associate yourself with Jesus and you don't like being, you know, if you're spiritual, but not religious, he says, that's not going to cut it, right? If you're not willing to associate yourself with me, and if you're not willing to go all in, that's not going to work. But if you're willing to identify yourself with me, even in such a small way as giving a cup of water to one of my persecuted saints, you won't lose your reward. And so with all this being said, Jesus has given his instructions to his apostles and then we read in the very first verse of chapter 11, the end of this whole thing. Like I said, the uh, the chapter division is really wonky here uh, because this really should be the last verse of the chapter. It says, now it happened that when Jesus had finished giving instructions to his 12 disciples, he departed from there to teach and preach in their cities. So he sends them on their way, right? And they go out two by two. Uh, it doesn't tell us that in the Gospel of Matthew, but it tells us that in the other Gospels, right? So he split them up into groups and they went out and preached. And then he went on his own way, and he went and taught and preached in cities as well, right? And so now we have this little brief moment where the apostles and Jesus, they're in their separate places, uh, and they're going about further ministry. Uh, And once again, this is serving the overall greater purpose of helping the people not be sheep without a shepherd, right? That's how we read about it in Matthew chapter 9. And so we're going to stop right there. Uh, That is the end of Matthew chapter 10. Uh, We will be back next week to do a little recap thing in Matthew chapter 10 at large, because I like to do that every time we get to the end of um, an overall section of like, I kind of, you know, I've showed you all the outline of how I kind of break down the gospel of Matthew. Every time we reach the end of a new section, I do like to kind of just recap it and talk about big picture stuff so that we can kind of keep our eyes on where this whole gospel is heading. And so we'll be talking about that again next week to just recap everything. And then we'll just keep on trucking. I know that this series is going on a lot longer than I originally anticipated, but you know, I'm totally fine with it and I hope y'all are too. My name is David Tate. This is Now Let's Be Honest. Be sure to keep a smile on your face. Don't anybody steal your joy. Remember who you are. And of course, Maranatha.